for the rest of us, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. We have um, made it out of one section of Colossians and uh, are going into another today. Uh, we basically set the foundational truths of, of Christianity, uh, which is the first half of chapter one, uh, ending with the preeminence of Christ. And now we are trying, we are starting to transition into um, functional ministry, if you will. Uh, today's message is on the minister's expectation to suffer. And uh, after that, we'll talk about the minister's calling, and then we'll also talk about the minister's purpose. Uh, but let me read our passage to you, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Um, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, our focal passage today is verse 24. But I'm going to read from verse 21 to 26 in order for us to gain the appropriate context that we need. So Colossians 1, 21 to 26. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Amen. So I want to start off the conversation like this or, or the message like this. I want to talk about the church. And when I say the church, you, you know what I mean. I don't mean the building. I mean the people. We are, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And so uh, the church is the body of Christ, and we are called to a very specific uh, calling, to a, a very specific ministry, if you will. Uh, the body of Christ is called to live with one another, and, uh, and, and there's more to that, right? We're to live with one another, but we're to live in peace with one another, in unity and love and all these wonderful things. But we're called to live with, and we are called to live for each other. Those two designations are important. Uh, you can live with somebody and not for them, right? You can live with somebody in vain. You can kind of like, I live with this person, but only because I have to, right? Well, that shouldn't be the relationship of the church. You, you shouldn't be here just because you feel like you have to. You, you're here because it is a blessing unto you, and you know you are being a blessing unto others. So we are to live with and for each other, but we are also to live under the headship of Christ. And we are to do this for the glory of God and the good of each other. The bond we share as members, number one, we must understand it is unbreakable. Nothing can break that bond. And the calling each member has to serve is irrevocable. It, it, it surely is. We are to serve one another, and we are part of the body of Christ eternally once, once uh, we are saved. Our relationship is eternally secured by the blood of Christ. The Bible says not even death can separate us from God's love. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10 say this, 
speaking of the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Tell you what, that's one of those verses that just pumps me up when I read it. I love to read that verse. It just excites me. It it, it brings joy to my heart of what God has done. What God has done for the church, what God has done for each and every single one of us. And the way it ends, the fact that we were not a people of God, but now you are a people, all by God's mercy and grace. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy through God's kindness and goodness. It's awesome. So everything I just shared with you is, is, is biblical. It is the biblical truth about what or who the church is to be. But because of sin, the optics of the church doesn't always seem to match up with what it's called or what she's called to be. What do I mean by that? Well, within the church, there's infighting, there's division, there's selfishness, there's pride. There's a whole lot of other things that disrupt the image and function of the church. If we, as each, each as a member of the body, if we better understood our role within the body of Christ, I think there are several things that would happen. Number one, we would better understand our Christian calling. It would be clear to us what we should do. Um, Secondly, we would also be more willing to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. If, If we truly understood our role within the body of Christ. Well, here... Paul spends time in verse 24 talking about his sufferings, um, his sufferings as a, as, a, as a minister. And so as we look at this, that's something that we have to come to realize, that our role within the church is one of, I should say, suffering. That should be an expectation. But... Not suffering in the sense that, oh, in life you're going to suffer from sicknesses, you're going to suffer from this, you're going to suffer from that. Like we, we all know that to be true because we experience that all the time. This kind of suffering that Paul is talking about is brought about through ministering to the church. This type of suffering and giving of himself is, is brought about from giving of his time, his talents, his treasures, right? As Baptists, I got to put it that way because that's the way we understand it. It's given up of himself for the sake of others, for the glory of God. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what we're going to talk about. I think verse 24 helps us to better understand that. There are three questions that I want to answer uh, for this sermon that, that I hope will, will give us a better understanding of our Christian calling. The first question is this. Concerning the church, what was Paul? Or you could say, who was Paul? Well, for the sake of context, we know what Paul was concerning the church when we look at verses 21 through 23. I, that's why I went back and, and read those for you. Kind of kind of summarize what he says there. First, he talks about how um, telling the, the church in, in, in Colossae how they were alienated and hostile in mind to God. 
that they were doing evil deeds. But now, verse 22, he says, you have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, right? Above reproach, he tells them. That's what God has done for them. Then verse 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Well, how do you know that you are a believer? Because God continues you in the faith, right? To the very end. We, we know because God has us there. He never lets us go. So Paul's saying, this is, you are here, you were alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds, but God has reconciled you now. Now you're a part of his body. You are holy and blameless. And you're not holy and blameless because you're free from sin. You're holy and blameless because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You're holy and blameless because his blood has cleansed you of all your sins. Then he says, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's important. Right there, when he mentions the gospel, because he's about to say something about the gospel. So he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And here it is. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's key. According to Paul's words, in verses 21 to 23, he was a minister of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Because if you just like read through it, you're going to see the word minister. You're going to know that Paul was an apostle. You already know that. If you're a believer, you've been in church, you've heard it. So you, you make the connection. He's a minister. He's an apostle. So basically, automatically, we make the, connect, the connection that Paul is saying he's an apostle by saying he's a minister. At least I do in my head. When we think of minister, many times we think of pastor, we think of teacher, shepherd. Those are the things that come to mind. Well, the word minister, the word minister here in the Greek, it actually means servant. That's what it means. And I think that is, that kind of blows the doors open on that word and the meaning and what we are called to be. Paul says that he became a minister. Diakonos, I became a servant. What is the definition of a servant? Or what is the definition of a servant here as it's used in the Greek? A person in the service of another. There's no mistaking what Paul is saying here. He truly is saying, I'm a servant. Now in other passages, he says, I'm a slave. And that's a different terminology. But here, he says, I am, I am a servant. He's telling the church, this is who I am. I am a servant. I am in the service of another. Well, in this case, Paul is saying that he is a servant to the gospel. Because that's what is being proclaimed to all the earth. That's what, that, that's under heaven, of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. I became a servant, or a minister or a servant to the gospel. Well, for Paul to be a minister or a servant of the gospel, consequently, that means that he is a servant to the church. I, I love to put together like flow diagrams, flow charts. Uh, I, I really love to do that, especially when I'm preparing something or if, if, if I'm, I'm just thinking about something. It helps me, the way I think, to put 
a flow chart together to, to come to this conclusion that I've come to. Well, when you put what Paul is saying to a flow chart, you come to the understanding that Paul is a minister or a servant of the church. What do I mean by that? Well, if he's a minister of the gospel, where does the gospel proceed from? It proceeds from God the Father. The gospel proceeds from God the Father through Jesus the Son. In fact, we are told that he is the word. It proceeds through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is one who is preaching to the hearts of those that, that, that he confronts. I can preach as fervently as I want to, but it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do the work in you. I'm not going to convince you to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to do that. So we understand that the word is fruitful in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to the church. To the church, which is his body. So if you follow that flow, you see how Paul is saying that he is a minister or he is a servant of the church. It's one and the same. And as a servant to the church, Paul was an apostle. Now I think it's appropriate for us to, to, to list out who he was, to think of him as an apostle. We can't think of him as an apostle first and then move on from there because I, I feel like we would elevate him too much. We would revere him too much. We would almost pray to him, right, as some do. But Paul is like us. He's a servant. And if we see him as us, then there's no reason to pray to him. There's no reason to treat him like God. There's reasons to respect him and, 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 and to stand in awe of him as a man, but not as a deity, not as God. So what Paul does here is by calling himself a minister or servant, he puts himself on our level. So he says, out of me being a servant, I am an apostle. I am a, an apostle of the church. Well, we fall into the general category, like Paul, of being a minister. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you're a minister. And that is saying a lot because you belong to the Lord. But when I call you a minister, I'm calling you a servant. Amen? You and I, we're all servants. Now, we may all have different gifts, but we belong to the same body. We're all body parts. We all have different callings, but we're all ruled by Christ. So minister equals servant. Now, notice that in verse 23, Paul says he became a minister. I love that. That tells us that he wasn't born one. It wasn't one from birth. In fact, Paul was the opposite. Paul was alienated, like us, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who Paul was when he was born. 
up until the point where on the Damascus Road where uh, the Lord met him and changed his life. But he became a minister. That means someone made a minister out of him. Verse 25, we know who that someone is. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul became a minister through the transformation and calling of God. We follow the same pattern as Paul. We are elected and gifted by God to be ministers, to be servants of the church. Now, as servants, some are pastors, some are deacons, some are preachers, some are teachers, some are administrators, some are mentors, some are helpers. But we're all servants. And then if you want to speak to the church in the sense of a family setting, some are fathers, some are mothers, some are grandfathers, grandmothers, aunts, uncles. Some are sons, some are daughters. But we're all servants. Why do I mention that? Why is being a servant, realizing that we're a servant is so important? Well, I think it would be extremely beneficial for the church as a body of Christ if we all thought ourselves as servants. First and foremost, if we all saw ourselves on the same level, doesn't it, it doesn't matter you know, how wealthy we are or not, who we know or not, what we are in life or not, but that we are all on the same level. We are all ministers. We are all servants. Well, when you think about a servant, a servant looks to serve. Right? Can't be a servant and just expect people to serve you. You can't be a servant and just expect people to come and cater to you. So a servant serves instead of just being served. A servant is accountable to somebody. Well, who is he accountable to? Number one, he's accountable to the master. But even more so, he's accountable to those he serves with. He belongs to a, a, a something greater than himself. A servant is grateful for the blessings of the master. Right? See, when you have this mentality of a servant, like your outlook is different. Your expectations are different. Your calling is clear. It's not clouded by our societal view of things. Society, in society, we're taught, go get your education, get a good job so you don't have to depend on anybody. Make your wealth. Enjoy life. Man, that's, hey, that's great. That is great. But we cannot forget our Christian calling that fits underneath that, that fits within that, that guides that. We belong to somebody. We are his servants. Everything we have is from him and for him. 
And we are to use that for his glory. So, yeah, what was Paul? Paul was an apostle. Yes, you're right. More importantly, Paul was a servant, and, and so are we. I guess the question is, who are you? Whatever you do within this body, within this church, whatever you do within your family, you are labeled as something, but when it comes down to it, you are a servant of the Most High God. Second question, concerning being a minister or a, a servant, what did Paul experience? Well, in verse 24, he tells us what he experienced. In explaining his ministry to the church, I think it's pretty amazing that Paul, he begins with his experiences of suffering. Being a minister, as, as, as we see it nowadays, or as we have seen it in some places, being called a minister can elevate the person to whom the title belongs. The word is supposed to mean servant, but to many it means master. Ministers are revered in very elaborate ways. I mean, just, just very elaborate ways. With some, sadly, it is the minister's expectation to be treated lavishly, to be held in high regard, to have the seat of honor. In those cases, I believe they work to receive the gift rather than, rather than the gifter. And when that happens, it's an evil thing that is taking place. Well, Paul, as a minister of the church, he held the office of, as an apostle. Now, as far as a servant goes, that's a high office. He is an apostle. As an apostle, Paul experienced a lot of suffering for the church. You would think it, was, it would be the other way around. But with God, it's not the same as the world. As an apostle, he experienced suffering rather than just being elevated or being saved from suffering. Paul's suffering is just out of this world. 2 Corinthians 11 gives us a glimpse of what he went through. Just a general summary of what he went through. I'm going to read some of that to you here. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 to 28. Talks about his great labors. He says about his imprisonments. Or he talks about his imprisonments. He lists countless beatings that he endured. And this is for, this is as a servant of the gospel are a minister of the gospel. He says he was often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews of 40 lashes less one. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from uh, robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. This Paul was danger from false brothers. 
That dude was just in danger. In toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, and hunger, thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me, on, of my anxiety for all the churches. I'll tell you what, if we all experienced this, we'd get to know who the real Christians are right away. If every pastor had to experience this, we'd get to know who the real ones are that are called to pastor God's churches. Being a minister didn't bring Paul any sort of worldly fortune or fame. In fact, it caused him more worldly trouble than anything. Yes, Paul was revered by the church. He, he should have been. And he had special privileges as an apostle. He should have. But he still saw himself as a servant. The earthly good that he received in payments and gifts and respect, it paled in comparison to the trouble he endured. The point is this. As ministers, we are to have a humble disposition towards God and each other. The Bible continually tells us this. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Also, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. One more, Ephesians 5, 21, one of my favorite. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As ministers, don't search out a church or a family for that matter for the sole reason to see what you gain from it. And that is the common practice today, especially when people are looking for churches. You visit, all these one, you visit all these wonderful churches, and that's what you should do, but you're looking at how, how does this church meet the needs of my family? Well, as ministers, when we're looking for churches, when we're building our families, the bigger part is seeing how you can pour and minister to those you are joining to. It's like, how does this church need me? Right? How does my family need me? How am I going to minister to those God puts in my life? Lord, please give me direction in doing that. Not only that, but Lord, give me the expectation that in ministering to others, I am going to suffer. Somehow, some way. Because you, as a minister, are going to be pouring in to people. Ministering and pouring into people is not easy. 
You're going to have to sacrifice some time. You're going to have to sacrifice many things. But you cannot forget your calling. If you're not doing something as a brother or sister in Christ or as a parent or as a child, if you're you're not doing something that God has called you to do in his word because you do not want to go without, then that is the wrong reason for not doing it. You weren't called to an easy life. You weren't called to just minister to yourself, just take care of your family. You weren't called to make yourself comfortable and then watch everything else fall apart. You were called to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. That's what you were called to. As ministers, we can't expect smooth sailing. They persecuted and reviled Christ. How much more will they do that to you? We are to expect to suffer because Christ suffered. And we have to be content with that. Last question. Concerning suffering for the church, how did Paul respond? How did he respond? Well, the astonishing thing that Paul wrote was that he rejoiced in his sufferings for their sake meaning the church. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, following the logic and teaching of the letter that we have before us, uh, it helps us to understand this rather complex statement of Paul's. Verse 24. whenever I looked at it and said I was preaching it, I was like, why did I give myself this verse to preach on? Should have gave it to Pastor Laramie. Following the logic is important here. Paul has already claimed that Christ has reconciled all things through the cross. He's already made that statement. Let's back up, verses 19 and 20. He says, For in him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, all things. What did he do with all things? Making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what Christ has done. That's Paul's theology. Now, here he's not contradicting himself. Paul is saying Christ died once and for all. That, he, he stays consistent with that in every letter that he writes, especially Romans. But Paul is saying here about his own afflictions, his own sufferings. When he says that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, When he is saying that, the lacking that Paul speaks of is not the uh, efficacy of the atoning sacrifice because we know that it was effective. He died once and for all. Rather, Paul is filling up or he's experiencing 
what has already been determined by God and also what has been prophesied by Christ concerning the persecution of the church. That's what he's filling up. Christ told the disciples that they were going to suffer. And those who came after, they were going to suffer. If you look throughout the New Testament, going to Revelation, there seems to be a point of when the suffering stops, Christ comes back. That appointed time is not just left up to chance. God knows that appointed time. And it's according to the suffering of the church. Paul is saying here, the very beginning of that, I'm experiencing right now what has been already told to us about the suffering of the church. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The key thing, though, here in verse 24 is that Paul, number one, knows why he's suffering. He knows that this has been determined by God. In fact, his mission was to suffer for the sake of the cross. Like that was his specific thing. God was going to show the world how much he must suffer for the gospel. So Paul had a good understanding of what that meant. But he also understood that as part of the church, he was going to suffer. He was going to suffer what God had already ordained and what Christ had already prophesied. And he was good with it. His response is, I rejoice in that. Now, when I read that, I'm a little bit troubled by that. I have to be honest. When I hear Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings, at first, when I was a younger Christian, I I couldn't understand that. I, I, I was like, how can... Somebody just automatically rejoice in their sufferings. I, even today, I can, that is not my first response to suffering. I'm just going to tell you it's not. Maybe it's yours. I need to talk to you about that because I, I need to learn something from you. But that is not my first response. I don't think I've ever said, yay, suffering. Yes, thank you, Lord, for this suffering initially. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever prayed, Lord, I need to suffer. Please bring some suffering into my life. I've never done that. Rejoicing is not an automatic response to trouble. For us to automatically rejoice when we are going through the fire, in my mind at least, it's ridiculous. That's not the expectation I believe Paul is teaching here. Because in the same, or in the other passage that I read you, everything that he went through, he mentioned his anxiety for the churches. How do you get anxiety? You don't get anxiety for rejoicing over your sufferings. You get anxiety from the opposite. I know all about that. So yes, rejoicing is not an automatic response. I don't believe that's Paul's expectations. You may have a different opinion about that. But I think the idea or, or the idea is more aligned what Paul is saying here, this idea, this statement, it's more aligned with the need we have to find a reason 
to rejoice in our trouble. I'll agree with that. Because initially it's like you're trying to understand what's happening. Once you start gaining or understanding what's happening, then you gotta, you got to work through the flesh and you got to get all that out. And, and as God continues to minister to, you know, through your trouble, this, the seed of, of faith begins to grow. You start to remember scripture. You start to remember how good God is in your life. You remember how much he's done for you. You get to the point where it's like, I don't think I can do it anymore. I don't think I can go anymore. I don't think I have the strength. I don't think I have the wisdom. I don't think I have anything that I need for this. And God comes back and he says, no, I had given you everything you need for life and godliness. And, and he reminds you of that through this suffering. And then you may go through hell in this suffering. You may, you may go through something you never want to. You may even experience the darkest moments of your life. But at the very end of that, and just when you thought God was done with you, you start to rejoice over your suffering. Why? Because of what God has done for you and through you because of all of that. You are sanctified through all of that. You start to find reasons of rejoicing. You look back and you say, that was horrible, but God is good. I think that's what Paul is saying. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. I think the idea is more aligned with that. That. As ministers, as servants, we must expect to suffer for the sake of others. In that suffering, we have to find a reason to rejoice in our trouble. We have to find that reason. We have to search it out. How do we get there? Well, I think this is tied to another very important teaching of Paul. His rejoicing was fueled by his contentment. And I think that's the key word there, contentment. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, notice, I have learned, he said. How did he learn? Through many failures. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the key to rejoicing right there. Because that is not dependent on your circumstance. You find contentment wherever you're at. And when you find contentment, there is cause for rejoicing. Paul understood his role in God's redemptive history. He understood his role as 
a servant, as a minister, as a suffering servant. Why? Because the Lord that he served was a suffering servant. Despite of all his sufferings, he rejoiced that God would be victorious. That gave meaning and purpose to his trials. And it meant something for him to be a servant of a victorious king. Think about that. Yes, we may be servants, but we are servants of a victorious king. That is awesome. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. What is it doing? It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do we have a reason to rejoice eventually? Yes, we have a reason. We have to be refined by fire to find it, but there's a reason. I went to go visit an old friend of mine at the hospital. I knew this gentleman when I was really young. And he was a roommate of mine. He invited me to go and live with him when I was going to college and finishing, just starting off life, you know, as far as an adult. And this gentleman has always been a joy to be around. He's the kind of person that you, he's the life of the party, makes you laugh, has just great personality. But I think I've only seen him upset maybe once or twice, and I was the reason why probably so. But he just found out that he has cancer throughout his whole body. And heard about it. Sammy is his friend as well. Because Sammy and I, Brother Sammy and I were around the same age, working at HEB together, and that's where we met this gentleman. And as I'm sitting there talking to him, I can see he's aged. He's 83 now. When I knew him, he was 58. He was a young 58. He's 83 now, and he's sitting there. I can see his frail body. I can see the toll that life has taken on him. I can see the effects this disease is having on him. And while I was sitting there visiting with him, catching up, it was wonderful to see that none of that had touched who he really was. Because despite of him wasting away, he was still joking around. He was still looking at things on the bright side. Before I could even start ministering to him and talking about how God is the author and finisher of life and all this other stuff, he says, I'm, I'm ready to go. I just don't want to die here in the hospital. I want to die at home, but I'm ready to go. And he said something in the conversation that really struck me, just caught me off guard because he was talking about how he feels like people are expecting him to have this certain disposition, like you're dying, you're supposed to be sad. 
What do I have to be sad for? Never expected to live to 83. The Lord has blessed me. Every day I make a choice, I'm going to be happy or I'm going to be sad. I'd rather be happy. Man, that sounds so simple, but yet at that moment, that was so profound. Because every day we make a choice of what we're going to do. Yeah, we have trouble. Yeah, life is difficult. None of that is going to go away ever. Till you reach glory. Every day you have a choice to make. Are you going to have contentment? Joy? Or are you just going to walk around miserable? Making others miserable? Blaming others for your circumstances? Not being a servant? Just focused on yourself? Man, we have that choice every day to make. And when he said that statement, it hit me so hard. So simple, yet so profound. I pray that as we look at Paul, or as we look at Christ, but as we see Paul follow Christ, and how he describes himself here in Colossians chapter 1 as a minister, we come to know that word means servant. As we see him as a servant, that we can be like him in that we expect suffering. And in that suffering, we find contentment and joy because we know that what we are doing is bringing about the glory of God and we're doing it for the good of each other. I pray we can get there.